Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. You know, like all interesting people, writer Drew McGarry is full of contradictions. So in his nonfiction, which includes sports commentary and political commentary and cultural commentary, he's got kind of a badass Hunter Thompson voice, which I sometimes even find kind of intimidating. Uh, it's, it is a lot of profanity uh, and uh, derision, but that's wrapped around a lot of wit and insight. Um, but in his fiction writing, a different voice emerges, particularly in his new novel, The Hike, where we meet you know, a pretty normal uh, guy in his mid-30s, a suburban dad uh, and husband from Maryland who's trapped in a nightmare world. And we also know that Drew McGarry wears cargo uh, shorts, so how badass could he really be? Uh, he's joining us now, either to defend or lay down that reputation. Uh, welcome to our conversation, Drew McGarry. I'm I'm literally wearing cargo shorts. I'm literally wearing I, out of solidarity for you, dude. I'm wearing cargo shorts. I mean, that's really true. I'm sitting here. This is, I have never worn cargo shorts to work before, but because uh, because I want you to know I care. Uh, I, I have them on right now, uh, and so we should, now we have to contextualize this. So you were covering the Republican National Convention, and it's been blown up into I think a somewhat mythical version. I think in the mythical version, you got kicked out of the Republican convention for your cargo pants. But that's not quite true, is it? No, I I went into the media box and um, and the usher and the usher pulled me aside and he said, did you get the memo? And I said, what memo? And he's like, there's a dress code now. And I was like, oh, it was like long pants. huh? And he's like, long pants N- next time. Yeah. So I was like, all right. So then I showed up the next night in long pants. And that's what happened. It seems to me that someone coming up to you at the Republican convention in Cleveland and saying, did you get the memo? There are so many things that memo could have been about. (laughs) And so many memos lost that people really probably didn't get. And it actually also turned into a little thing uh, among the women's press corps because they were upset. They, they, in fact, were subjected to a perhaps more stringent and well-spelled out uh, dress code. uh, and, And they were chafing under it, right? Dressed like a proper lady. Yeah, mine was standard. You're you're dressed like a slob, and and perfectly fair to 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 get at me for that. I I, I really I didn't have a problem with the policy. I I was just hoping I could sneak in and stay cool. Right. Um, on the other hand, and first of all, we should also say that over at Jezebel, for example, they were they were strangely heartened by what had happened to you. That made them feel a little bit better about what was happening to them. Uh, they they were saying if McGarry's cargo shorts are banned. Maybe we can live with the yoke that has been placed upon us by an impre- yeah, oppressive Yeah, yeah, they turned they they used I they turned against me. That's not fair. <laughs> not fair at all. Although, and we'll, let's say one last word about cargo shirts because that's not what we're here to talk about. But you really do like them, right? Because you can put stuff in them. Yeah, I can put stuff in them, and, but I don't have to wear pants, and I don't have to wear I don't have to carry a bag around. So that's I don't want carrying. I hate carrying things. Yeah. But they're hands free. Yeah, it does. You do get stigmatized, though. And I don't know what your wife is like, but the woman I live with regards anything like that with like a lot of pockets 
it, it, it goober is the word that she uses to stigmatize it. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, it's like it's like dad uniform. But right. I um, I have a nice pair on today. I have a pair of Calvin Klein cargo shorts on today. So right. they're they're a little they're a little more slim fit. All right, so you're you're rocking uh, those cargo pants. Uh, we we have a lot of things we want to talk about today, uh, ranging from politics to culture to sports to cooking. Drew McGarry is a chopped champion, but I think first we should uh, spend a little time on the real real reason he's here, which is the hike. Uh, it's a novel. It's uh, a hard novel to describe. It's about somebody who does seem to get lost uh, in in a nightmare, a waking nightmare. Uh, he has for company occasionally a wise cracking crab who sounds a lot like the Drew McGarry who writes for Deadspin and GQ. He sounds much more like that Drew McGarry than does the protagonist, Ben. I would say if you like the books of Lev Grossman, who's been on this show a lot, you will probably uh, like uh, you. You probably like the hike. Um, so maybe you can first of all. I mean, did this arise from? Do you go on long hikes and suddenly have moments of anxiety? Like, what if I can't get back? What if the entire landscape changes? Yeah, I, I, I it, it came from a, a literal hike I took where I was, I was walking outside a hotel and was very alone in the woods, and there was there was nothing else around, and I, I, my imagination started to play tricks on me and. I was thinking about like you know bears coming and and kidnapping me and stuff like that. So that that all came from a real spot. And then also, yeah, if I if I go somewhere on business uh, and I'm away from my family and kids, I don't really know what to do with myself. So yeah, I I will walk around the city in like a lot. I'll walk a, I'll walk a few miles every day to sort of get the lay of the land and just have something to do and get some exercise and and stuff like that. So uh, in in this in this one too, there seems to be a, a way in which the this surreal fantastic experience is uh, is kicking all kinds of psychic tripwires for this guy for example he has a problem with rottweilers i don't want to do any spoilers but he's got a rottweiler issue and there are uh, people running around in not just rottweiler masks but the kind of flayed off skin of rottweilers chasing him around maybe that was a spoiler i don't, I don't know so no, uh, it's all right. yeah it, it do you have specific phobias when you're out in the woods, like you know things that would really be upsetting to you? Uh, there are a couple of my fears in the book. Like I, I, I live in Maryland, and there there are cave crickets in my basement, and I hate them. So that's in the book. Uh, I know people who have been attacked by dogs, and so I'm I'm a little wary of pit bulls and rottweilers. So um, so that's in there. Although it's, that's sort of an indirect fear. So yeah, I whatever I find sort of repulsive and disgusting. Uh, I I put in there for for sheer entertainment. I I I had never I don't live in Maryland and I had never heard of a cave cricket or imagined a cricket being a source of terror. Um, yeah, you so. wouldn't think. You wouldn't think. But <laughs> but yeah, I I didn't know about them until we moved here. My parents have actually lived in Connecticut for like twenty five years and they're not up there. Yeah. And uh, and then they're in my basement. I was like, what are these disgusting things in my basement? So, I mean, from the book, I know what, what a, an encounter with a really, really large one would be like. But what is so bad? About, uh, they just hop around a lot, though. I mean, that's all they do. I mean, they, don't they hop around. They just they look really gross, and they hop at you. <laughs> and I don't know. I'm I'm a wuss. I've, you're right. They don't bite or sting, and yet I'm scared to death of them. Do they poop on you? Do they ooze on you? Do they, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. If you kill them, they have, like, a sick, disgusting ooze that comes out. It's gross. Well, that, that's, I think that would be their right if you killed them. <laughs> 
Yeah, you, that's true. You can't they get have ups- the right to they have the right to bleed on you. Right, I you can't get upset about what something does when you kill it. Yeah, now no, I agree. You forfeited your right to outrage about this. So I I have the I had developed a theory while I was reading this book, which you are now free to shoot down. But uh, I thought I could find a through line to part of your past writing, although I think you tended not to be the one writing these pieces so much for Deadspin. But Deadspin, which we should say for people who are uninitiated, is uh, a very attitudinal sports website. Uh, Will Leach, uh, the founder, has been on the show many times. Um, And one of the things they're really interested in are how terrifying many sports mascots are. Uh, And there's this whole kind of nightmare fuel theme that runs through Deadspins are reporting on sports mascots because because why because there's something I mean they're 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 big things they're like you know human sized crabs in some cases and and ants uh, and, and weird abstractions and they have these frozen expressions that don't modulate at all you know they're always smiling no matter what's happening right I, and I, I started wondering as I was reading this book I wonder if sports mascots at some subconscious level had gotten into your head. No, but I see. I I agree about how they can be a little creepy. There's a dude, you know, in a giant with a giant head, and the and the the expression is frozen solid, and it's hard to envision like a person behind it. It just seems like a monster, you know. Uh, no, the only thing that I sort of borrowed from from my blogging history was I wrote an NFL site called Kissing Susie Colbert, and we used to do some. We used to we used to Photoshop pictures of people and replace their their eyes with their mouth we would do mouth <laughs> eye stuff and and we would have that under the tag nightmare fuel and it was disgusting and people were always like oh god why do you have to go do that and that that i had some influence from that so uh, another thing that seems to have influenced you is something that i was completely unaware of i think it's i'm just generationally not poised for this something called the king's quest video game series i looked it up it looks like sort of an 8-bit kind of old style yeah. Game, yeah, old school like point and click stuff. And so, what is it? And what what is it? And how did it inform uh, the hike? There, they're like there are these old shoddy computer games that I played for hours on end, where you were like a dude and you were on a quest, and you had to you you had an unlimited inventory. You had to pick like you had to you had to look behind a rock, and there would be a magical dagger, and then you would have to go, you know, three panels over, and you would have to use the dagger to dig a hole to get the the lamp and rub the lamp to have a genie come out and stuff like that. And I don't, for some reason I am, I was always really drawn to that sort of clumsy buggy style of gameplay with a little eight bit dude walking around. And, uh, and that, and so the book, there's no, there's no video game references in the book, but it has that feel at times of sort of found objects and, and uh, magical potions and, and all that stuff. Just cause I still, I still like that. The kid in me still enjoys all that. Um, usually people produce culture, the kind of culture that they, they want to read and that they've liked in the past. W- was there anything in particular that you were trying to do with this, either in terms of capturing some other kind of work that, that you've enjoyed a lot? Or, I mean, w- what's your ultimate goal for the hike? Well, I mean, the goal is to sell a bazillion copies. Yes, and, I knew you were going to say like that. God. <laughs> uh, no, I, the, every, time, every time I write a book, the only goal is make it as entertaining as possible possible for the reader and if they take anything extra away that's fine and in terms of my own enjoyment yeah i want something that reads fast and has a lot of stuff happen and has a lot of action that sort of comes at you um and so and and you know and is is fun and has characters you can connect with so 
And the other thing is that, you know, I, I read a lot of folktales as, as I was a kid, and, and so I kind of wanted to do an update on that and have, have a story that, that's pretty, pretty durable. I mean, the basic, the basic plot of the story is a guy gets lost and has to come home, which is the oldest plot mm-hmm. on Earth, you know. Um, but there's a reason that plot, you know, sort of sticks around because it's really durable. So it's, it's nice to, to sort of aspire to, to do something that will be – close in spirit to, to Wizard of Oz or, or It's a Wonderful Life or, or any, of, any of those sort of, you know, any, any sort of uh, surreal quest-type classic story. Um, or the Odyssey. And so the Odyssey maybe is the, the, you know, the Rosetta Stone from which a lot of this other stuff uh, depends. And, and I don't know. I mean, the Odyssey always winds up being also about life stages and life challenges. And I know you're mainly trying to entertain us, but are there things in this book that are very real for you, either spiritual questions, psychological questions, family, oh, yeah, di- family dynamics sure. questions? Yeah, yeah no. I, I think that goes into entertainment, you know, and that goes into people are going to be more into the story if they're into the character. And so you have to go deep into the character so that they have something they can connect with on a deeper level, you know, loneliness and longing and regret and all of that stuff. That all that all plays into it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and this dialogue between the protagonist and the crab, I mean, it really kind of gets down to the whole question of what's the point, right? What's the point of all this? Is there some big master plan for life or are we just sort of walking uh, through various stages of our biological existence? Uh, are you conscious of loading that question into this book? Is it something that's kind of gnawing at you right now yeah i mean sure I, I i wonder what the point is sometimes you know if or if I'm, I'm having a bad day i mean generally i have a pretty good outlook but you know i wonder about what's in the beyond i wonder what you know what's what's in charge of of all this you know i'm uh i'm not like a specifically religious guy but there's something that's keeping the electrons spinning and I, I i'm i'm in awe of the power and i don't but i don't quite know what it is you know we're talking to Drew McGarry right now. He's a correspondent for GQ and a columnist for Deadspin. He's the author of the memoir, Someone Could Get Hurt, uh, and the novel Postmortal. But right now he's got a book out called The Hike. It's a novel, as we're saying. He's also a 2015 Chopped champion. I guess we'll, yeah, get, to baby. <laughs> we'll get to that at some point. Um, I, I do want to talk a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing for GQ uh, and talking about whether we're, in fact, in the middle of somebody's master plan. Uh, here in 2016, I think a lot of us have felt like like, well, we're if we're in the middle of somebody's master plan, he has a really fiendish sense of humor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so maybe maybe we can begin a little bit with the Republican convention. What did you encounter there? In reading your coverage for GQ uh, from the Republican convention, I kind of sense that you both were and were not meeting the the kind of Trumpian world that your imagination had conjured up. Well, uh, we thought we thought it would be a very chaotic scene, and there would be a lot of so- social upheaval and unrest. That's why we went. I, I wasn't hoping for that. I want. I don't want anyone to get hurt. Uh, you know, I don't want Cleveland to burn or anything like that. You know, um, and when we went, it was very muted. It was very staid. You know, the, a lot of the delegates that were there didn't want to be there. They weren't terribly enthusiastic. So a lot of the sort of party atmosphere wasn't there. And then in terms of protesters, there were a few, but you know, frankly. You know, protesters, they're not, they're not, gonna, they're not just going to go to Cleveland, you know? Like, like if it had been Los Angeles, then, you know, they could have done something cool with their off-protesting hours. But, like, it just wasn't, it wasn't heavily populated. It was mostly cops and media people. And then, like, you know, some, some delegates, and that was kind of it. 
So uh, one of the things that I found, I've only covered one Trump rally so far, but um, I've always thought that one of the uh, that that what's terrifying sometimes is when the veil of comedy, of politeness, of geniality is pierced. Like I think Rosemary's Baby is a really scary movie, um, specifically because at a certain point Mia Farrow has to acknowledge that all these really nice people, John Cassavetes and Ruth Gordon, and the people who've been smiling at her and acting really nice towards her, they're demons. You know, they're like, Right. Horrible people. And, and there's going to be at minimum this very socially awkward moment where that has to be talked about. And I find that more scary than anything visceral that might happen. Well, Go ahead. Yeah. That's that's that was the problem with the RNC or not the problem with the, the reason that the RNC was a relatively peaceful affair was because unlike a Trump rally, which are now they're really distilled into a, you know, a specific sort of angry goober. And, and those rallies are populated exclusively by his his people, you know, so they're going to they're going to be more chaotic. Whereas this, you know, you had you had establishment Republicans, you had Cruz supporters, you had uh, you had you had delegates who were obligated to to who were allocated to Trump, didn't really want to vote for him, but were were party loyalists and were going to. So it's like it's almost like a music festival where you know people were there to see a lot of bands, but not necessarily just one, and so. Um, you know, it's hard to sort of, uh, it's hard for that group to coalesce and start making some mayhem the way it is at a, at a Trump rally where, where it's, where it, it's really now just sort of one sort of angry type of, of person. I love the I, it's, I love the idea that it's a music festival, like the worst music festival ever. Oh, I hope Ted yeah. Cruz plays his hits. Let him play his hits. Yeah. Um, well, but what I, what I found at the rallies was that. I would talk to people at the rallies, and they were often very nice people, you know, and they were guys yeah. who had – they were auto body shop guys or whatever. They had small businesses, and uh, and and I said who I was, and we smiled at each other, and we were nice. I asked them a lot of questions. They were happy to be asked questions. And then Trump came on, and he started to do his thing, and at a certain point in his more or less canned patter, he points at the area, that pen where they keep the press, points at us and goes – these are the worst people in the world, and everybody starts booing, including these really nice guys that I've been talking to yeah. a couple of seconds ago. Suddenly, they're foaming in the mouth and and possessed by a demon. Yeah, and so, but that makes me wonder what what's the reality? To me, that part felt like kabuki, and the thing that had happened before that, the conversation with those guys, felt real. I mean, it kind of made me wonder: are both things equally real? What, what should I put my trust in? Yeah, I think I think he's exploiting a lot of inner angst and anger that that people have, and 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 blame, you know, blame on foreign groups or or anybody else that they think is has sort of uh, you know an outside force that has conspired to make their lives miserable. And so face to face, they'll be pleasant, but when they get worked up over, you know, it's you know that, but then you open up a can of worms in front of them, and and they feel uh, I think probably liberated by Trump's you know, sort of officiousness that they, they can then they can they can act likewise. Do you feel as though in covering this uh, campaign that it's such a firehouse stuff is just spraying out all the time that, it, that it, you almost don't get a chance to linger over things? I mean, there was a moment after Cruz's speech where he said, I think the next day that he didn't want to be anybody's servile little puppy. Right. Um, which now we know what his safety word is. But uh, but also, I mean, that was the kind of thing that I would have 
savored for a little while, except that, I mean, there's stuff happening so fast that the things that might have been interesting to deal with, you can't really stay with them very long. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I mean, like, remember when he threatened the Pope and, like, and he said Putin called Obama the N-word? Like, that wasn't even the lead story of the day, you know? (laughs) One thing does kind of drive out another. So, you know, we, just sort of back to what Cleveland was like. The, my, our, my sense watching it on television, I've covered a lot of conventions. I didn't cover this one, was that, that, I mean, not only wasn't Cleveland burning, and I agree nobody wants Cleveland to burn, but that, I don't know, the energy level just in general all over the place didn't seem like, like maybe even in the hall didn't seem like I, what I would have expected. Yeah, when the first, the first night in the hall, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, it was very wan, and it, it got more enthusiastic Night by night, but that was because I think a lot of people who were obligated in, to be in the hall were, didn't have to go those later nights and were replaced by people more supportive of, of Trump's cause. But in the initial sort of formal stages of the convention, when a lot of people were not enthusiastic to be there, then then, then the crowd was, you know, it, instead of being, you know, instead of people, you know, voicing their displeasure, it was more sort of a resignation and, and you know, tepid enthusiasm. Um, one of the things that he's doing a lot is, and he was doing a lot at that convention, is showcasing his family. Although that's kind of turning into a thing, too. I mean, remember the good old days when you had to go find somebody to nominate you for president whom you didn't toilet train and put through college? Right. I mean, it's it's like now everybody's doing that. Well, he, he, he didn't toilet train those guys. No, that's probably <laughs> true. Uh, well, although whoever t- toilet trained Eric and Donald, there's still yeah. some resentment left over, I think. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I, you know, it's it it's one of the, one of the bad media things is that where where they're like, oh well, it, oh well, he sucks, but his kids are lovely, and they're and the kids have said some rotten stuff, you know. So it's like, no, you don't get a free pass just because you're you're the people around you are slightly less objectionable than you are. That's that's not how that works. No, and somebody can, uh, compl- uh, compared uh, Donald Jr. and Eric to kind of the scary guys in like a John Hughes high school movie. You know, right, they, would be, yeah. they would be the guys who are really being really mean to Molly Ringwald. Yeah, um, like the, with the Patrick Bateman hair and all that. Right. Yeah, sure. and, and they also go to Africa and shoot leopards and stuff and stand on top of them. Which, uh, yeah, so it's like, you know, just by staying next to Donald Trump, you automatically look like a better person. But it doesn't mean you are. But I have to say, just to, in the interest of fairness, that I found Chelsea to be an inappropriate person to handle the intro for her mom. That they, you know, first of all, it went on way too long. It was paced in a very strange way. Um, and I just sort of thought, I, it seems to me that it wasn't that long ago where, you know, you had to find somebody else who'd done something like this to mm-hmm. nominate you as opposed to somebody who has no choice but to love and approve of you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing. I think, I think. I think that that uh, political families are now so visible and sort of part of the process that I th- I think it's 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 less a comment on the politician than than their stagecraft where they they you know they have these they have people who who love them unconditionally and you know they can get they know they can get an awe moment you know instead of having a colleague do it and there's some warmth and humanity and that's that's all very strategic yeah so you. It, but it's like we're Argentina with the Perones or something. It's just like we, we now get families. We, we, we get dynasties. We don't get— Yeah, you get dynasties, man. Yeah. All right, we're talking to Drew McGarry right now. We're going to take a little break here. Uh, his newest book is The Hike. Uh, it is a novel. Uh, uh, it veers into the world of uh, disturbing fantasy, but it's also kind of funny. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back with more Drew after this. 
You said your favorite color was green. We're talking to Drew McGarry. Uh, he's a correspondent for GQ, a columnist for Deadspin, the author of the memoir, Someone Could Get Hurt. That's about being a parent. Uh, and the novel, uh, The Postmortal. Most recently, currently, The Hike is out. Uh, it's a, a novel uh, about a man who gets lost in the woods, like really lost in the woods, uh, and not just the woods. Um, I want to talk to you about a bunch of different things here, but and maybe that's a good way to begin, which is that you – like a lot of people these days, I think, don't necessarily observe the divisions that journalists used to have to observe. There used to be people who wrote about sports and people who wrote about politics and people who wrote about culture. Um, somehow over the last 10 or 20 years, we've started to believe and understand uh, the amount of intersection uh, among those things that, uh, you know, and so, some of the brands that you've been associated with uh, seem to to say that too, that, you know, people aren't just interested in one thing, so why should a writer write about uh, one thing? You want to react to that? Well, that I that I think I'm I'm sorry. So so I'm talking about like just writing different stuff. Yeah, just the notion. I mean, there used to be people who were sports writers, and sports writers they wrote about sports, and that's what they wrote about, and they didn't yeah. write about anything else. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, all those barriers are breaking down, and I, it's part of the economy because you know a lot of the media companies are, are strictly freelance based now, and so people people have to write where they can, and you know I. I'm of the mind that, um, you know, I tend to be a multitasker because it helps me if I get stuck on one thing, I just move to another project. I think it keeps you sharp and, and flexible to do different stuff. You do a little bit of sports, a little bit of politics, a little bit of entertainment. I'm, and some writers don't work that way. Some writers want to do one thing and one thing only, and I respect that. But for me personally, it's, um, you, know, I, you know, it's much better for my career prospects if I can, if I can do a little bit of everything. I think also it's the way that we think. I think we understand things culturally. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, what did I just say, that the two uh, Trump uh, kids were like villains in a John Hughes movie? I mean, I, I think that in many ways the way that we process political reality is through the culture that we that we understand. Yeah, and my sort of, you know, my my brain now operates, this, you know, the the way it does when I'm surfing the Internet, where, you know, I'll, I have five tabs open and I dabble here and a little bit there. And, you know, your you, Twitter, a Twitter feed is completely schizophrenic because it's, you know, it's jokes, but then it's also horrible news and, you know, and stupid gifts and then terrifying videos from, you know, like some country in upheaval or something like that. And uh, and I, I think it's it's sort of wired my brain where I'm, you know, I'm a bit, you know, I have a bit of a short attention span, but but I'm able, I sort of, it's sort of like diffuse focus, you know, it's not... I don't feel like it's detrimental to me, but it's de but I definitely feel a sort of uh, a jumping around. I think also, you know, Reagan got in trouble because sometimes it, it seemed as though he didn't know uh, that he was talking about one of his old movies when he was talking about something uh, in real life that he had somehow or other fused policy with the popular culture out of which he had emerged. But I think now we're kind of all doing that. And, and I think, you know, if you're a politician, uh, you run the risk of kind of exciting people's memories of some popular culture that preceded you. I'll give you an example. You know, Trump has this thing where he says, 
that, and he's been saying it all along through this campaign, that he's a great deal maker. So with, in foreign policy, he would just go make deals, you know, whoever right. it is. He'd make a deal. He'd make an arrangement. And I keep, I may have mentioned this on the radio before, but I keep thinking about Hart Bachner as Ellis in Die Hard. Uh, because, right, isn't that what he says to Bonnie Bedelia? This is what I do. I make deals. I'll just go yeah, make yeah, a deal. Yeah. I'll make a deal they, with the terrorists. They get shot in the face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's almost as if you're a candidate now and you say something, there's a pretty good chance that people who are uh, basically are imbued with all kinds of pop- popular cultural references are going to go, oh, no, you're just like that guy in that movie. Yeah, sure. And, yeah, it's actually the danger in books um, because if I do it online, like there's a certain disposability online where you can make pop culture references and it's fine because the, you know, the, the blog post is going to have a shelf life of like two days anyway. Uh you know, with with some with some small exceptions, but a book you have to you really have to build to last. So, if you're going to make a pop culture reference, you need, you know you need to make sure that it's still relevant. You know, ten twenty years from now, otherwise it's otherwise it's not it's going to you know because of the lag time involved. You don't want it to be dated instantly. Um, Drew McGarry, you know, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, you do have this kind of voice that you write in, and it occasionally does remind me of Hunter Thompson minus the really hard drugs. Um, but there's also this other side of you. And reading your novel, The Hike, I feel like this protagonist, Ben, who basically loves his wife and loves his kids and misses home and, you know, that that's probably a little bit closer to who I would know if I just was one of your friends from from high school or college, the, the person that I would know, than this guy who's so good at ripping <clears throat> ripping stuff to shreds. Or, or are both of those aspects of you very present and real? Yeah, I think they're both fairly real. I mean, you know, I I like I like you know goofing off and complaining, like taking taking small annoyances and then blowing them out to extremes just for for comic effect, like in real life too. You know, but. Uh, yeah, I think you. I think you can. You can. You can sort of occupy both those personas, and you know, it's like anybody else. You have. You have. You know, I'm probably even less complex than most people. You know, I'm not. Like I get. You know, I get worked up about stuff like anybody else. But then at the end of it, I'm still just a basic generic dad, like living in the suburbs and all that. And you know, I think one of the reasons that that I've been able to you know sort of do rants and stuff like that and have it have them go over pretty well is. When you do that stuff, you there has to be something that signals to the reader that you have a sort of moral center of your own, you know, that you're you're choosing your targets wisely, you're willing to you're willing to also make fun of yourself, and that you you know and that you are you know when when matters get serious, you do take things seriously and stuff like that. So I think I think if you give that the reader that sort of faith. And the person behind the writing, then then it, you can you can you have license to do a lot more. Right, uh, that's a great uh, way of putting it. Um, it leads me to I have two sets of questions about this. Um, one of them is: so you're a loving father, but not a loving enough father to buy your child a Trump whoopee cushion, even though you knew it would make her really happy. I think you should have to explain on the air why your daughter is growing up in America without a Trump whoopee cushion. Because it was ten dollars, overpriced. You can get a regular whoopee cushion for a dollar at the dollar store. That it was way, the markup was, it was too much. It was not. It wouldn't have been right. You know. Uh, also, you said I think in the piece that you don't like blowing into them. Yeah, because they're all powdery and and they smell weird and all that. All right. It's like it's like blowing up like a pig's bladder. 
Well, you know, in the same piece you, the, that I'm talking about, which is about sort of this kind of hate paraphernalia um, that was available and, and other kinds of enjoyable life-affirming paraphernalia, like whoopee cushions, that was available at the convention. I, you know, th- some of the stuff that you described is stuff that I've seen, too. And it's a lot of it is stuff that caricatures Hillary, Hillary Clinton in, uh, uh, you know, the most – vulgar terms possible, the most bodily terms possible. There's this whole KFC joke about her, which I'm not even going to re- repeat on the air. You found, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. you found a motorcycle thing where Trump's wearing a T-shirt that says, if you can read that, this, it means the bitch fell off, and you can yes. sort of see Hillary Clinton falling off a motorcycle. And, you know, I mean, in some ways, to, to your point before about the idea that you, maybe you're a guy who comes across a, as kind of sardonic and and uh, profane, but there's some kind of moral center there. I, I was intrigued to see that your moral center was actually truly offended by some of the stuff that you were looking at. Oh yeah, sure. I think that's I think that's part of it. I think you know if you're going to do a rant, well, you should punch up, right? You should, you know, punch up at. at at Roger Goodell or someone who has a bit more authority and power than than you do, as opposed to just selectively belittling people, you know, for for reasons that are small and, and petty, you know. Roger Goodell is actually a very sensitive guy. Uh, yeah, it would appear. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more Drew McGarry, one final segment after this. Pants, what great stuff, just like pants. Said they got a lot of pockets. What you gonna do if you got a lot of stuff and you don't have a bag and you don't wanna hold all of it? How about you get some cargo pants? Those things are so great. They've got a whole lot of pockets. All right, we're back. It's time for me to say my thank yous. Uh, Betsy Kaplan is the master producer of the show. The technical producer is Jonathan McNichol. Uh, Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. So if you're hearing this uh, and you want to tweet back, tweet at WNPR Colin. We also have a Facebook page, Colin McEnroe Show, on Facebook. And uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Roger Goodell. We're going to be back tomorrow with The Scramble. We're going to do one of our sort of uh, real-time news reaction shows. I'm assuming some of the things we're talking about today will be part of the fodder of tomorrow's show. This campaign thing, it just seems to gin up an awful lot of news, as we were saying before. Right now we're talking to Drew McGarry. I have to say, my mind is all screwed up here because we're, we're I, I'm going to tell you, we're pre-recording this interview and we're doing it a few days before it's going to air. And we're also doing it an hour and 30 minutes exactly before it would air. And I'm just, my my, my poor brain is just not handling this all this well, all that well. But yeah. go ahead, yeah. Pretending, pretending one time is another can, be, can throw you off a bit. So hard. So much harder than it should be, anyway. Uh, Drew McGarry is with us, correspondent for GQ, columnist for A Deadspin, uh, author of the memoir Someone Could Get Hurt, uh, the novel uh, The Postmortal, and now The Hike, uh, which is a novel about a man who goes out for a walk in the woods. What he thinks is going to be a very short walk in the woods. Uh, but it's not. It's like Gilligan's Island, but with monsters uh, and horrible, frightening things. It's also very funny, too. So, um, you know, I want to just go back one more time uh, to Cleveland just because it it um, it kind of reunited you with a family whose destinies you have affected. And that would be the Robertson family, the Duck Dynasty uh, people. Uh, I know well, one of them was up on stage. And you were, you're you the guy. You're, you wrote the GQ article that really did get Phil Robertson in, in, in a lot of trouble. Is that something? Yeah. I mean, you seem, you seem like a nice guy who's not really out there to make a lot of trouble for, you know, most of the people that you write about. Um, do you have any kind of sinking feeling about how that whole, all played out? 
Uh, I mean, in some ways, yes. I don't have any regrets about the article. The article is perfectly fair. Um, I enjoyed my time with the Robertsons, you know. So it's it's it sucks that you you know you have a nice time with someone and then you walk away, and you write your article and you know two months you know two months later everything goes goes completely crazy and haywire, and you've had this sort of you know at least in their mind a, a, a deleterious effect on 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 how they do business. And I don't, you know, I don't like upsetting people or anything like that. But also, I had my job to do, and you know, and I, you know, and he said some controversial stuff, and uh, you know, and and they never disagreed with it when it when it came out. So there's only so much I can do, you know. They're not going to invite me to any garden parties, but that's that's the deal sometimes with being a journalist. You're going to write stuff that people aren't necessarily going to like, but ultimately, you know, your job is is not, you know, is not to serve them, but to serve. To serve the reader. See, I think it's also, not to torture my own analogy, but we're kind of back with the Rosemary's Baby problem, which is that you often encounter in life people who are engaging and nice and pleasant, and if you're visiting them, they show you hospitality, uh, and uh, there's just, you know, some nice, pleasant, cordial bond that you're uh, forging with them, and suddenly they'll say stuff that so completely contravenes your own value system and so completely violates everything that they should be saying to somebody they know is also composing a, a piece of journalism about them. But, you know, I mean, that's almost secondary. It's the first thing. It's like, wow, you thought it was okay to say that to me? What what kind of understanding do you think we have about each other? Um, and and I, I don't know about you, but I often find that just very, very disconcerting, like this incredibly pleasant person has op- suddenly opened up his or her mouth and turned out to be the devil. Well, it's like seeing your, your relatives post on Facebook for the first time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there's something to be said for sort of forced, phony politeness, you know, where it, you're face-to-face, you're, you're pleasant, and, and you don't, you know, you don't just automatically start throwing rhetoric at one another. I mean, that it, there's a superficiality to it that is both, you know, that, that's kind of necessary and fine, you know, and that's how people are able to live with one another. And I'm, I'm all supporting that, that sort of uh, waspy passive aggression. <laughs> well, there's the, the whole Janet Malcolm thing where, you know, you're a thief in the night, you're a burglar, you're trying to get somebody to really tell you who they are, which is sometimes the case when you do that kind of thing. But uh, there are other times, other pieces, uh, you know, in a situation like that when you're kind of hoping, well, I hope that's not who you are. Um, and then they tell you it is. Well, with that with that stuff, because GQ will send, sends me to a lot of uh, – you know, a lot of, like a lot of, like the I did that. I did Kid Rock's cruise. You know, I went to a Trump rally, and we always go into it like agenda free. Like we can't just go and sneer at people, right? Mm-hmm. That's that that would suck. Then you're just then you're just the the uppity jerk going to point at the at the at the you know the poor white people and and laughing. And it, that's not really good. You're not gonna you're not gonna no one's gonna want to read that. Um, so you you have to be willing. To not only empathize with people, but allow yourself to be surprised by them, for better and for worse, you know? And the other thing is that, you know, the Internet gets very reductive. So if one person says one ugly thing, that tends to define them, you know? Whereas I think that's obviously not true of, of people in general, where they might say some ugly things, but they do some good things, too. And so there's, you know, a little bit of a yin and a yang. I mean, that's what they're trying to say about Trump now, but that's actually not true. But, like, you know, it's... It's hard to you know reduce you know a person to one soundbite or something like that, and so I really do 
my best to paint the picture as 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 broadly and as you know as with as much detail as I can. And so, you know, hope, you know, hopefully there's stuff that you that you that you discovered that you didn't know before that maybe surprises you for for good, and then stuff that maybe you suspected was there, and then you have your worst fears confirmed. Um, Drew McGarry, you talked before about multitasking, about working on different things. Uh, if one of them's uh, not pleasing you, you can just jump over to another one. So one of the things that you're working on right now, uh, I mean, maybe not during this conversation, but generally speaking, is our series of pieces in Deadspin called uh, Why Your Favorite Team Sucks. Uh, and, and these are football pieces. I'll let you explain this. This is, this is a, a subgenre which you've uh, invented and perfected. Explain what it is. Every, every year we preview each uh, NFL team – uh, going up to the season by explaining why that team sucks. And then all the readers, uh, all the fans of that team chime in to pile on their own team and, and explain why, why they're so awful and why they're so annoying. And it's sort of like a little cathartic purge before the season begins so that you are emotionally ready for your, your team to let you down. And so, and one of the things that you do in the series is, I mean, it could seem assaultive if we're just you, Drew, uh, pulling up all this stuff, churning up all this stuff that's objectionable and stupid or the people who've been hired who aren't, aren't smart or dumb coaches or whatever. But you, you end it with these, this kind of almost oral history of despair for each team, right? One of the things that you do is find uh, quotes from fans talking essentially about all the ways in which they feel very defeated by the level at which their team sucks. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a cleansing exercise. You air your grievances and then you feel you feel you feel cleansed. Now, you and I are on a thin edge here because I'm a Packers fan and you're a Vikings fan. That's all right. I won't hold it against you. <laughs> That's not what Obama said when he was on the show. I, I told him I was a Packers fan, and he's a Bears fan, obviously. And he said, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have agreed to do this show. <laughs> uh, so you're being much more charitable and open-minded about this. than Yeah, yeah I should be president. There you you go. definitely should be president. So do you are, do you do a Why Your Team Sucks about the Vikings, or do they of get course. a pass? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's always the longest one. I got a lot. I got to get off my chest about that team every year. Um, and, and are there people who really can't handle this uh, that they really do regard it as trolling them? Oh yeah, there are people who take offense. Although that it's lessened as years go by, because obviously the first time it happened, people were like, "Hey," you know. <laughs> um, but it's become such a staple of the site and, and such a yearly sort of event that it doesn't it doesn't get the mass um, sort of backlash that it that it does sometimes. It will vary sometimes team by team, year by year too. And if, it feels this feels like something that you're kind of expanding as a franchise, right? And there are why other t- other favorite things suck, right? Well, like kid TV shows and stuff. Yeah, sure. Although you know, I have to again, I have to I have to be flexible, and I have to I have to like some stuff too to balance it out. Yeah, um, but I, I feel as though this that's a universe uh, that could expand infinitely. Oh, sure. Yeah, because there are a lot of things that suck. Right. The only ceiling really is the amount of time that you you have available. Hey, uh, I, since I know that this is a subject that gives you great pleasure just from your tone of voice when it came up earlier, and also because this is – it's weird because there's people who know you in different ways and know you for different things. Uh, you are a chopped champion. And this was yeah. – explain how this happened. This was like a thing that they did uh, for people who weren't professional master chefs, right? Yeah, it was the it was the amateur episode. So I filled out the application and put it up on Deadspin, and then people read it, and then they got to the producers, and that's how I got on the show. Um, but but then you were good enough to win, and then I was good enough to win, baby. Well, tell us more. I don't watch Chopped, so tell tell us what what did that involve? Uh, all right, so Chopped is three courses: appetizer, entree, and dessert. Four contestants. 
one person gets eliminated each with each course and you have to you have to cook whatever's in a mystery basket that you open up and then you have like 20 30 minutes to cook the course and uh the first basket had like some some sausage in it and the the second one had a wild boar roast in it and i had to make wild boar <laughs> and then the the last one had like uh some cottage cheese and like strawberry jam and stuff like that and uh, I read your application. One of the things that you seem to have done very effectively is identify things that probably the people who make this TV series don't like about some of the other people who compete, you know, that they whine uh, yeah. when, when they open up and that, that kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. They whine and they're like, oh, I don't like that food. Well, why'd you go on the show, you know? And, and you are a, a very serious cook, right? Or an intense cook. What's the right way to, uh, what's the right way to put it? Yeah, I, I I like it. I like it, and I yes, I'm, I'm annoying when I cook sometimes because I'm I'm all into my I'm into my salad, and I I don't want to be disturbed until it's finished and perfect for the family. Yeah, I'm a little bit like that too. Other people in the kitchen are not necessarily a great thing. You get in a zone, right? You you start yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah, and you're thinking about what you're thinking about, and and you don't want to be thinking about something that somebody comes in and brings up with you. So so who did you beat? Who did you crush? Uh, when you won Chopped? Uh, I was going up against a cabaret singer, a Long Island hairdresser, and a woman who made life-size dolls. So, and I beat them. <laughs> All right. Um, and, and like everything else, you have very strong opinions uh, about food. And I, I have to say, I don't agree, although I agree with most of what you have to say about pasta, I don't agree with you about linguine. Now, explain what your thinking is about linguine. What did I say about linguine that I didn't like? It always falls off my fork. I think that's my main beef with linguine. But there's lots of things that fall off your fork. Spaghetti falls off your, your fork. Angel yeah, hair could fall Yeah, but something about some of that flat pattern fits right into the, the tines of the fork and then slithers right out. I can't keep ling linguine on my fork for very long. See, I think the good thing about linguine is because it's flatter than, I mean, spaghetti and angel hair and stuff like that, it's all essentially tubular. But because linguine is flatter, Pesto is going to sit on it a little bit more. You know, it's it's it, there's you can't sit on something that's curved, a curved sur sur surface like spaghetti. So, no, it, it's true, it's true, yeah. and and it has its place. Like I like it in Fra Diablo and stuff like that. So I'm not fully, I like I don't push it away in disgust. Like right. I I find it impractical sometimes. Right. Well, I mean, I just wanted to clear that up because first of all, I mean, there, as you know. Better than I do, although I have this experience a lot. Everything offends somebody. Everything that you ever say is offensive to at least some small group of people. I'm sure there are there's some kind of linguini support group out there. That's, linguini rights activists. Yeah, sure. exactly. And they're going to come talk to you. So uh, as we're, we're kind of running out of time here, but just another dimension of all this. I mean, here you are, this winner of Chopped. You're also a guy who lost a lot of weight, right? Yeah, like... Uh like 2010, like I dropped like 60, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was just, uh, I stopped eating late. And I, you know, I kept track of calories finally for the, you know, the way, the way human beings are supposed to. And that helped. Did you have a personality that was based on the kind of body that you had when you had 60 more pounds on it? Did you, and did you have to decide whether to keep that personality? No, I think it's, no, I think it's only, the only difference is this, you know, the sort of the basic mood enhancer. You feel better. You know, you're, you're fit. You feel better about yourself. You feel better about your health. You have a better outlook. That's really the, only, that's, that's really the, the standard difference. You feel better about yourself, and that, and that affects, you know, that radiates out. 
Hmm. So uh, for somebody who multitasks as, as much as you do, what's next is probably a kind of a, a tricky question. But I assume, first of all, what's next for you right now is spending uh, from here till, to November covering this campaign a lot. But do you have other big projects up out on the horizon? No, for now, no, because I tend to write books in the NFL offseason, and we're just getting to the start of it. So that's going to occupy a lot of the bulk of my time. And, uh, and, you know, and I'm not in a rush. Like, this book came along... Because, you know, I tried to rush a couple of other books, and then this one happened naturally. So I'm going to try and just sort of take it as it comes this time. What, what uh, subplots of the NFL season are you intrigued by? And don't say Tom Brady. We're all tired of Tom Brady. I just want to watch my team, the Vikings, and see how they're going to destroy my, my will to live. <laughs> they are definitely going to do that. Uh, well, Drew McGarry, it's been a terrific to talk to you. Uh, the book, we should say, is The Hike. Uh, it is a, a novel. It's about, uh, as we say, a man who gets lost in the woods is befriended by a crab who talks a lot like the way Drew McGarry writes when he's writing about sports and politics. Uh, it's both funny and upsetting. And when you get up from reading it, you have to feel around your house to make sure your own reality is still intact. Thanks for doing this with us today. Thanks a million, man. In your kitchen. Well, there's crackers in the stew. Spuds are gone black. Chicken's gone off and he ain't coming back. What's cooking? Tell me, baby. In your kitchen. You've got a hell of a mess. Oh, Lord, please, in your kitchen. I said, well, the eggs are broken. Burn the fries, some in the fridge, you can't recognize what's cooking.